This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 11 of Literary Disco, the Winnie the Pooh episode. Today's episode in two parts. First, we'll do a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelf to discuss. And then author Stephen Dow will join us to discuss the Winnie the Pooh books. I'm your host, actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong, and joining me are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. All right, so who wants to go first on the bookshelf revisit? I would love to go first. Um, so, as usual, um, I'm not actually going to talk about a book today. Um, I, I, I don't know. I do usually try to make an effort, but, you know, I like to talk about the things that are interesting me, and I'm not always in the middle of a book that we aren't already reading. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about this really interesting essay um, that David Lowry uh, put up on the Internet. David Lowry was the lead singer of the band uh, Camper Van Beethoven and also the lead singer of the band Cracker. Um, so sort of late 80s, early 90s, seminal indie rockers. Um, and by seminal, I mean uh, they sold poorly. <laughs> um, but people with cool hair like <laughs> They them. had a big influence, though. They're yeah. both Northern California bands, right? I yeah. Feel like. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, I periodically read his blog, which is um, the tricordist.wordpress.com. And recently there was uh, an episode of NPR's All Songs Considered where a young woman who works on the show named Emily White talked about how um, she had 11,000 songs in her music library, but had only ever bought 15 CDs in her life. And that she had basically been, you know, stealing songs from the internet for her entire young life. She's not, she's That is insane. Well, wait, uh, well, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because literally while I was waiting for you dicks to get around (laughs) to doing this podcast, I read the same article. Oh, you did? (laughs) Yes, like really 20 minutes ago. And it wasn't just that she illegally downloaded them. Very few were illegally downloaded. She shared files. So she copied, she ripped things off other people's iPods and stuff. She had a lot of P2P stuff. Um, so David Lowry wrote this very long and well-considered essay about, um, basically paying for art. I mean, that's what it boils down to is paying for art. And it's something that I've been thinking about more and more lately as it relates to eBooks and the prevalence of eBooks and how often, um, I see my own stuff showing up for free on the internet. And, uh, David Lowry makes some fantastic arguments. You should all go and read the article about, you know, why you should pay for music and, uh, you know, I'm not above guilt here. When In the Napster years, you know, uh, I probably downloaded 80,000 songs on my 56K 
modem. <laughs> I, I, I specifically... Your AOL dial-up. Right. I specifically remember it taking like 45 minutes to download um, Come On Eileen. Like that was <laughs> that was a, a, a big moment in my life and finally I got Come On Eileen three hours later. So I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, that I stole a lot of music, of course, and, and periodically if I can't find a song on Spotify or iTunes or something that I want, I'll go to YouTube and I'll, you know, rip it from YouTube using one of those services that rips a song. And I don't really ever think about it. Um, but as it relates to books, um, I think the sort of fascinating thing, and this is an argument that is going to be going on for a long time as it relates to books, is the price of an ebook um, is not reflective of anywhere near the cost to produce an ebook. Um, right. And so then when you see them for free, uh, it, it's, you know, it's just one of those, well, you know, free is almost the price it costs to make an ebook. So it's almost, a, you know, the, the right price. Um, but from an author side of it, of course, I think, oh, God, you know, you can basically have any of the 12 books I've published for free if you want to on the Internet. You can, you can download them on, on some torrent site. Um, and I wonder if, and I've never, I've never downloaded a book online. I've never downloaded an ebook. Uh, that I hadn't paid for. I've never downloaded an audiobook that I haven't paid for. And I wonder why I, I didn't mind stealing music um, when I was doing it a lot, but I wouldn't do it for an author. And I think part of it is that I think, okay, well, the record company, this machine is making the music, whereas a, an author, one person is at their, at their table typing. But then in David Lowry's essay, he really talks about how little the record companies are involved anymore in the production of music. Right. It's a really fascinating essay. I mean, what did you think of it, Julia, when you read it? I mean, I, I felt the same way. I didn't when when Napster happened, I was seventeen and it was only a year or so that it was out and I remember feeling like it was like this temporary gate had opened. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I remember the like, oh my god, they're gonna shut it down almost immediately after I had discovered it. That's right. I totally remember having the mm-hmm. feeling too. <laughs> I just like, get, get it now. It while you can. Right. Yeah, and there was a time where like they were starting to crack down on it, so you had to like misspell everything. Right. Oh my you remember god. That? Forgot it's so about crazy that. to yes. think about now. Um so I was into it but not as like a lifestyle. It was just like a you know, a wormhole had opened in the universe and we could all get this stuff. But um but since then I have literally never downloaded anything illegally, except I think for one movie that Greg and I downloaded and we immediately got like a letter. We got caught <laughs> instantaneously. <laughs> Who sent you the letter? Like Steven Spielberg sent you a letter? And then you Dear spent Julia. years in jail. <laughs> no, like I forget. Give us like, back the cable company list. or something. <laughs> I think basically there's going to have to be a new model other than guilt tripping, you know, this new generation into paying for something when they mm-hmm. clearly don't have to. You know what I mean? Like guilt is not going to sustain right. <laughs> this problem for Well, and it's that it's that long. idea also that, you know, literature has always cost more than music. You know, a book has always cost more than a record. But, you know, I, I wonder if there's going to have to be a service like a Spotify type thing where you can get for a limited amount of time ebooks at a discount price or something like that just to sustain the model. I mean, I know smart people are already talking about this somewhere. Yeah. Um, because piracy for ebooks is only going to expand the more prevalent they become. Um, but I mean, you know, as... I would never pirate a book, but I would go to a library, mm-hmm. not paying shit for that. 
Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that's an organized system that we all trust. So right. that's what I think the future is going to have to be is some kind of organized thing like that. So you know, what interests me a lot about this is, I mean, I'm really curious. You're right that books have always cost more than music, but I'm not really sure why that is. Because music to produce actually costs more, right? right? In terms of production, you have to have studio equipment, you have to have pay people to play the music, mm-hmm. and you have to pay the distribution, and da 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 da. So creating an album is way more expensive than creating a book. Just well, to no, buy no, a no, guitar. No, 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 no. no, you have to think no? of people's time. If right. you right. pay exactly. someone so for two years to create a book. Right. 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 Whereas an album, what? Nine months, six months, maybe. Well, six who knows? Weeks, I mean, really amazing. But it's multiple people. It's probably right. comparable, or. But see, what's interesting to me is that film is the most expensive to produce. Mm-hmm. Like that, that costs so much, and yet, like Todd, what you were saying is that you have you have the most problem with downloading a book because you feel like you're taking it directly from an author. Right. right? Like the idea is that you're sort of stealing from one person. Right. Whereas when you have this idea of machinery, a, a record label or a film company, it feels more victimless. Right. So all this is a long way of saying, um, if you get a chance, take a look at David Lowry's essay uh, in response to um, this, this interesting young woman who has, st- you know, stolen a lot of music. Um, but it, it's a compelling conversation um, about art and about the value of art. And I think that's something that we don't talk about uh, nearly enough. And obviously, uh, the three of us are passionate about this in, in a lot of different ways. Um, so give it a look, and I'll, we'll put a link up to it on our on our Facebook page so you can see it too. All right. For my uh, bookshelf revisit, I'm going to talk about the first, uh, I think it's the first graphic novel we've discussed on this podcast. Is that true? Yay! I, I almost so. picked one. All right. This is a an amazing graphic novel called Shortcomings. Uh, it's by Adrian Tomini. I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, T-O-M-I-N-E. It's a great, great graphic novel. It's sort of like, I mean, I guess in the tradition of graphic novels, it's sort of like mumblecore in that it's mostly just, it's not, you know, obviously it's not a superhero story. It's not a big flashy... uh, you know, externalized story. It's one of these these graphic novels that's just about people and relationships, and um, it's, in particular, it's about this guy and this girl breaking up, basically, and that happens right away, so I'm not giving anything away. It's about their breakup, and um, it's, he's, he's this Asian-American guy in San Francisco, and his girlfriend starts to suspect that he has a wandering eye, and in particular, that he's really interested in white women and hmm. so it becomes this sort of wedge in their relationship and um he flirts with moving to new york for a while and she moves to new york and he follows her there and it's just a very simple sort of relationship story but man this is such a compelling read it is it's 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 like you know annie hall or the best sort of relationship movies where it doesn't it, the artwork is not like out of this world crazy it's just really poignant and it's really specific and it's not super cartoony and the characters are so well developed and it's a genuinely sad book it's short it won't take you that long to read um because it's a comic uh, but it it sort of stayed with me i read it in december and um i'm still thinking about it and i kind of want to reread it now so if anybody has ever liked sort of relationship B movies or any of the sort of mumblecore, smaller comic stuff, this is amazing. And and somebody recommended it to me, or somebody gave it to me for Christmas, 
because I had um, said that I love graphic novels like Fun Home by Alison Bechdel, mm -hmm. and that was one of my favorite uh, graphic novels because you, Julia, told me to read it. And, um, and so I said, if there's any other books like that, somebody get me this uh, when we were talking about what we wanted for Christmas, and uh, it was my girlfriend's sister gave me shortcomings, and I loved it. So I actually think this is better than Fun Home, I have to say. <gasps> Yeah. I must read a, it. Fun Home, Fun Home is better artwork. Fun Home is much more interesting in terms of how the art inter interprets the story, uh, without a doubt, because it's much more abstract and interesting things are going on. This is way simpler, but in terms of the depth of the characters and the depth of the issues, um, you know, issues of sexuality, issues of race, there's a lot of stuff about New York versus San Francisco and what is cool and what's mm. not. And this this poor guy, this main character is Ben Tanaka. Is his character's name? And his 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 sort of sad sack, intellectual, lost in his San Francisco culture. Uh, it's so well developed, um, and it really does. It's sort of like an Asian Woody Allen, and I just love it. It's it's yeah. Anyway, everyone should read it. I'm gonna have to read that. Can I make and a uh, a sad admission? Claim. I've. Uh, What's your sad admission? I don't think I've ever read an entire graphic novel. How mm. can you not? Are you I implying that you've stopped partway through? Uh, I think I started a couple and then didn't finish. But what about comic books? Did you ever read comic books as a kid or anything? No, I was never into comic books. But you know, people keep recommending graphic novels, and I read this interview with um, Allison Bechdel in the New Yorker a couple weeks ago, um, and I was fascinated by it. And then she was going to be in LA at. Um, at the writer's block or something like that. And I thought, oh, I should go to that because she sounds fascinating, though I haven't read any of her stuff. And uh, I don't know what it is. I just, uh, I've never really thought, oh, you know, the next time I'm going to read some of your graphic novel. So we'll, we'll have to read a graphic novel here on the show so I can experience it firsthand. But, like, when I was a kid, I, I remember, like, I bought, you know, like, Star Wars comic books and stuff like that. Um, but I just, I just never got into comics. Well, those were probably not that good. I mean, no. I know I was never into comics as a kid either because I always felt too late. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. by the time I was being told, like, "Oh, you should check out X Men," there was already three alternate universes, and there was just way too much research that I never felt like you know I never had that person introduce me to say Superman or Batman and say like, "Here's where it starts. Start reading this 1962 comic in order to understand where." So I just I was always sort of a mess that I could never penetrate. And so then when people started recommending things like Persopolis or Blankets or right. The Walking Dead, uh, The Walking Dead was the, the first, like, sort of mainstream, real zombie, you know, it, I, I still don't read superhero stuff, but I read The Walking Dead and Why the Last Man, which are both amazing series, and they sort of take the more sort of pulp comics to a new level, but then also you have the Watchmen, the Fun Home. Well, and, and, oh, yeah, and I realized I, I, just as I was thinking about this, now I was looking back on my uh, on my computer. My I have a, I'm a dork. I have a list of books and shit that I have, <laughs> and I, I I read Transmetropolitan, the series, the Warren Ellis series, because I reviewed I reviewed his book uh, Crooked Little Vein, and so I read all. Did of you his get stuff. into that? Yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. I, I thought it was, um, you know, I like that noir stuff, you know, and I like sort of that mm. alternate future stuff. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed Warren Ellis, but I've just never, I don't know. You know where you should start, Todd? Is um, Or maybe we should read it, but I think pro so many people have read it now, it might be pointless, is Mouse. Mouse. M-A-U-S. It's, uh, it's about this... Uh, 
middle-aged yeah it's the nice yes but it's but it's not just about that it's about a man interviewing his father about his holocaust experiences and they're and they are all mice it's to me i mean i think that was the probably the first huge graphic novel that had absolutely nothing to do with comics i'm i'm sure some amazing fanboy will smack me down on that but that was the first one that really like crossed into yeah. mainstream and was taught in schools and at colleges and yeah. um, it's I think just that amazing. Was, I think that's recognized as a big turning point. Okay, uh, my revisit is this amazing book, Up in the Old Hotel by Joseph Mitchell. It's actually hmm. a collection of New Yorker columns from the, oh my God, I should know. 30s? I no, mean, it spans later, a while. Yeah, I think it's the 50s and 60s. But I don't know it all because it's so timeless and good. Um, yeah, I actually had this book when I first moved to New York. I feel like I read through this book, but that was 10 years ago. So Yeah, I've got it too, and I've, I've just sort of read it in piecemeal um, in my bathroom. So there's great. that. Yeah. Okay, so the copyrights on the stories range from 1938, it looks like, through the 50s. So, um, the reason this book is so good is because the prose is so beautiful. Um, the stories are about old New York places that basically no longer exist, but, uh, they are so beautifully painted and the characters of that old New York world that we've all seen in movies and TV, uh, are so beautifully drawn here that I just love this book. I actually have not read the whole thing cover to cover. It's one of those, I mean, I don't read it in the bathroom because I'm not gross, I read it honorably. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I mean, I won't go on about it too long, but you guys have read it too. It's just... Um, now, this book was also... Does this have the Joe Gould essays in it? That yes. That became Joe yes. Gould's yes. Secret, the movie yeah. by Stanley Tucci? Yeah, yeah, so people will probably know that movie. Even though it wasn't really a great well, movie. Well, I don't know what that hit. is. You don't know that oh, the it's movie? Oh, it's a fascinating no? story. Okay. Well, I mean, so I've read Joseph, the stories, but I, I didn't know it was right. a movie. So Joseph Mitchell wrote these essays or these stories about this semi-homeless guy who became sort of a literary figure in New York in the in that time period, which I guess was the 40s, maybe 30s? And 40s. Joe Gould was dead by the mid-50s, if I remember correctly. Okay. So Joe Gould was this kind of raving lunatic who was also kind of brilliant and really funny and entertaining. The literary world of New York sort of took him under their wing and... There's this movie about it, but Joseph Mitchell writes, he has a couple essays about it, um, about Joe Gould. Um, and I remember when I moved to New York, we, we used to go to Chumley's, which is one of these classic speakeasy yeah. bars that's still around. And, uh, you know, I remember being there thinking like, oh, this is like where Joseph Mitchell used to hang out. Yeah. And, and Joseph Mitchell is one of those like ultimate New York writers. Like you can't visit New York and be a book nerd without reading one of his essays and like trying to find his old stomping grounds because he was always always drinking in some bar talking about writing the white horse tavern on 14th street in hudson i first met joseph mitchell at the white horse tavern in 1947 Uh. he was drunk (laughs) off wine and panther meat well yeah the white horse tavern for listeners who don't know is where dylan (laughs) thomas got drunk stumbled out into the street and died died. it's where I celebrated New Year's Eve 2001. It's also I spent a lot of time at the White Horse. It's also where as historically um, important. And also yeah. it's, it's a place where Ryder made us all once walk through New York in minus 10 degrees to get to. I did make you guys go to White right. Horse. That's right. We had a lovely time after we could feel our extremities. 
I used to go to Whitehorse from school and sit there and read. Like, I remember reading Ulysses in the White Horse. Like, oh now I look God. back on it, I'm Jesus. like, what an oh, idiot. God. Like, here I was, 20 years old, like, holed up in a corner with a beer and, like, French fries, reading James Joyce. Like, you're, you're lucky oh. TMZ didn't exist when you were yeah, 20, yeah, writer. I, I was, it was, it was literally on the, I lived on that corner. So it was, like, my local bar. But it also got really crowded, and I wouldn't care. I would just stay in the corner reading Ulysses. Yes, I still do that. It's not terrible. You know what? It's great. And when I see people doing that, when I see people reading pretentious shit in restaurants, I think those people are happy. <laughs> and then I open my book. <laughs> All right. So on that note, ladies and gentlemen, please go out, find a bar or a Starbucks and be as pretentious as you want. <laughs> everybody welcome back to literary disco joining us in the disco today is the author stephen dow stephen is the author of the novel the book of jonas which was published earlier this year to rave reviews we uh, hate him for that we hate him for that hate him so full disclosure stephen is a very special guest of the disco not just because he's awesome and his book is brilliant but because he is one of our closest friends from our time at the Bennington Writers' Seminars. Stephen was a part of many of the arguments, discussions, and freezing nights looking at the stars, <laughs> which gave birth to Literary Disco. Mm -hmm. So uh, welcome to the Disco, Stephen. How are well, you doing? Thanks, thanks very much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I've listened to a few of your prior uh, episodes, and I, I do feel a little bit... Um, you know, overwhelmed. They're really good. I feel a little bit like one of the Jonas Brothers trying to play guitar for the Rolling Stones. But oh wow! <laughs> well, that Nick Jonas, that Nick Jonas is going to be in that Les Mis movie. So oh, is he? And, and there's you. another Jonas who has his own reality show now on E! called Marrying Jonas. Oh, thank God. I don't know if you so, know, but we know a lot about the Jonas Brothers. Do you? Because I don't know anything about them. Well, you wrote the book of Jonas, so <laughs> that's not what your book is about. Well, there goes all my questions. So, I, uh, The book of Jonas tells the story of a 15-year-old uh, named, uh, or actually he's, he's renamed Jonas. Uh, he's a refugee from an unnamed war-torn country. Uh, who's relocated here to the U.S. to live with a, an American family. And as Jonas adjusts to this sort of strange new reality of contemporary U.S. life, he's haunted by the memory of uh, the war and the loss and pain that he experienced back home. And so then we, uh, the book uh, starts to give us flashbacks of the story of what happened to him during the war, and we find out that he actually spent some time with a U.S. soldier. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. But um, really, this is, I mean, there's not, the, the book is mostly about grappling with the experience of war or trauma in general after the fact. Um, it ends up, I, I mean, I read it as a book about memory. Uh, Stephen, what drew you to this subject? And then, I, I mean, more importantly than that, why did you decide to structure it this way? Um, I think in, in terms of the, I mean, I first got interested in that, in, in the overall sort of subject material from working in, um, I worked in international development and sort of post-war reconstruction and things like that for about 10 years. And that, um, that drew me to it originally 
you know, just being around people who had lived through a war. I lived in Sarajevo for a very short period of time and worked with people there who had, had been through a war and seen what that could do to people, see how it could affect people. And, you know, one of the one of the the biggest impressions that that period of time made on me was how little we who are not exposed to those sorts of, of circumstances understand about those circumstances. And the fact that, right. you know, just because you see them on the news doesn't mean that they're not people, you know, that they don't have the same or similar experiences, hopes, wants, dreams to, to all of us. And so I was drawn to it, especially to try and humanize sort of all sides of that story. All right, so it's told sort of from three points of view, from the point of view of, of Jonas, the refugee, from the point of view of a, an American soldier who goes off to war, and the point of view of the soldier's mother. And the fact that when you make these decisions to go off to war, the, the effects of it are far-reaching, you know, further reaching than you a lot of times is, is thought, especially in the U.S. when the U.S. decides to go off to war, which it seems to do fairly regularly. We're, we are good at war. That, that's well, like, we, yeah. we've got good at war and football. <laughs> That's it. We're good at going to war. Oh, and ice cream. Oh, we're good at ice cream. I feel like you must be getting a lot of a lot of doing a lot of interviews where people make the sort of one-to-one connection between, oh, you worked in post-war reconstruction, therefore you just sort of translated this experience into a right, book. Right. And that's that's not the case at all. It's it's way more complicated than that. I relied on sort of first-hand experience for a lot of the emotional impact, right. the the emotional ramifications of what happened, uh, not not the plot points, not the the events as they unfolded, mm-hmm. but the the you know the the either the emotional reactions or the lack of emotional reactions to whatever circumstances. And in terms of actual makeup of what happens, I relied on a lot. I read a lot. Um, there was a fantastic documentary on PBS called The Wounded Platoon, which tracked, a, a, I believe it was a Marine company, that was deployed in um, Iraq on multiple tours, you know, five, six, seven tours. And it tracked them from before they went over until five years or six years over. And it is a devastating critique of what happens. Well, and let me ask you a question, Stephen, um, because I was thinking about this when I was reading the book and, and Ryder's first question got me um, to ponder it too, which is that a lot of really great fiction about war, as Ryder said, is the aftermath of war. Um, and so we, even if you look at like Austerlitz by Siebold or the things they carried, you know, which a lot of the, the stories and the things they carried are... Tim O'Brien looking back on that moment or the moments that shaped him, um, or even um, a book of stories like uh, The Laws of Evening by Mary Ukari Waters, which looks at um, World War II from the Japanese side. Um, and I'm, I, I guess what, is, what all those share and what I was thinking about as it relates to your book is it's not so much about the battle, it's about the process of dealing with who you are after you've done terrible things. Um, and presuming you haven't done terrible things, I mean, that we're going to talk about on the internet. I mean, there's some shit I saw you did yeah. oh, at God. a bar in There was a time he once. killed the drifter in Bennington. That was... But that was just to get an erection. Yeah. And what you do to get an erection is, I mean, that's up to all of us. Um, so I'm curious, Stephen, how, how, do you, how did you get into that mindset? I mean, you can watch all the documentaries you want to watch. You can read all the books you want to read. 
but you still have to sort of be a character actor and put yourself into that mindset to deal with that sort of pain. How, how do you conjure that? The, the, the best way I can answer it is by saying I would look at things that I had done or had happened to me, not on not to that sort of extreme level, but things that felt similarly but, uh, you know, were exponentially less, and I just tried to feel it right. more or stronger. Yeah, the one. I mean, this isn't a question, but uh, one of the things that I love most about the book was how real the emotions of you know a fifteen year old, fifteen or mm-hmm. right, he's fifteen or sixteen. Um, yeah, yeah, when it starts, young boy, yeah. Jonas. Um, yeah. uh, the emotions of him trying to fit into a new place and being pushed to succeed. I mean, that's such a familiar feeling for any young man. But the conditions under which he's being you know, asked to adapt and really define success in America, define his success in America are so extreme. Well, it's probably easier, Stephen, I would guess, for you to write about feeling awkward and alone in a strange place because you have been an American who's lived in awkward and strange places for your, most of your yeah, adult yeah, life. That's, Even now, living in Belgium, right, for God's who in sake. the world, who in the, yeah. you know, the first time I ever, I ever came to Brussels, I remember it was on a train trip from Paris to Amsterdam, and we got off the train for about three hours in Brussels, and I remember distinctly thinking to myself, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of a nice city, but I would never, ever live there. I've been, <laughs> I've, I would never raise a child ne- I would never here. raise a child there. I've, I've been here, we've been here seven years. Um, well, actually, I wanted to ask you about living in Brussels, just because it, I've heard you say before, you, you've given this great line, that Brussels is Paris light. And yeah, it's, it's uh, di- diet Paris. Oh, diet Paris. There like you go. Tab. <laughs> it's Paris zero. Paris free. So I, I'm curious. Do you think that there's any benefit to you? Like, I mean, because we we all have this romantic vision of like you know Hemingway in Paris and living in a foreign country to to, to write the great American novel abroad. Do you um do you think that you actually benefited from being in a foreign country at all, or do you just hate Brussels and and uh, are ready to move back? <laughs> No, no, no. I don't. I don't hate. I don't hate Brussels. I don't hate Brussels at all. Um, it's. I. I think. You know, I was here while I wrote it, and I think that that is reflected in the in the book. You know, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that it was going to come out the way it did, and I think the reason that it sh- took the shape that it did, um, and the reason in part that it's about this person who's stuck between two worlds is because of you know where I am. Or where I was as I was writing it, I think that that plays a big, you know, plays a big part in it. So I'm not going to ask you um, why you didn't name the country that Jonas comes from because I feel like everybody asks you that question, and uh, and I uh, instead I'm going to recommend that uh, maybe you name it Hefalumpia. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just Woozle. Woozle, uh, Woozle, Woozle. sounds a lot more. Woozle. I much the, the country of Woozle. Hephalumpia sounds a little Cold Warish. Yeah. Woozle feels more modern. Hephalumpia yeah. is. Woozle has just declared independence from like Monravia. <laughs> oh no. Um, yeah. So let's uh, let's go on to Winnie the Pooh. This is Stephen. You chose for us to read here at the Disco two books. The classic A.A. A. Milne books, Winnie the Pooh and The House at Pooh Corner. Uh, so why did you pick these books for us to read? 
Well, I have to, I have to say it was a, it was a toss-up between uh, the Winnie the Pooh books and uh, Michael and Dacia's The Cat's Table. <laughs> right. And um, the, the reason that I finally settled on the, the Winnie the Pooh books is, I, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with laziness, frankly. Um, <laughs> you just didn't want to have to read That's for too long. That's a very Pooh-like thing to say. I, I read uh, those books to my, my daughter on an almost daily basis to get her to go to sleep in the afternoon, or, or I did before she outgrew her naps. And, um, before she turned on me. <laughs> <laughs> did you read these books when you were a kid? Or did your parents read them to you? The, I read these are these are two of the first books I ever read, um, and I don't remember how old I was when I read them. But um, uh, and then I didn't read them again until my daughter was born, and I read them. I started reading them to her. How about you, Todd, Julia? Did you guys read these as kids? Or? Yes. Yeah, I, I I read them when I was kids, but when I was kids, when I also had a Siamese twin, um, <laughs> I read them as a child. I professed to really liking the ride at Disneyland as well, but when I sat down to read them um, several weeks before this recording, or last night at midnight, um, I realized I had absolutely no real memory of anything other than um, the kid dragging a bear up and down the stairs and people eating honey. Um, And then when I read it and found out that it's really a book about some of the most obsessive, compulsive, and screwed up people in the history, and animals, in the history of American letters, though I think it's British, um, <laughs> I was both frightened and excited to go on the ride at Disneyland yet again. Yes. I read them, I mean, I've loved Winnie the Pooh for a long time. Uh, I, I'm i pretty sure I read the books as a child. I definitely watched, there was a cartoon, and there was a live, right. or there were Disney cartoons and a live action thing, and I just sort of knew about Pooh as an entity. But then when there was a live action one. Yeah, there was a live action show with like people in costumes. There was. I think so. Oh, that would be horrifying. You're thinking of Alf. No, no, guys. There is a Winnie the. There was the Winnie the Pooh show. You're thinking of that plushy conference you went to. Uh, that's another story. Altogether. The furry convention. The furry convention. I yeah. was wondering how long it would take to turn in this direction. So anyway, so I watched those as kids, and then what I really want to say is that when I was uh, twelve or thirteen was when the Tao of Pooh became really popular. And I read that, mm-hmm. and I reread all the books, and my friends and I were just really into Winnie the Pooh. And we would talk about them and, like, identify with different characters, and we were all the Pooh characters for Halloween that year. And I just felt, like, a strong wow. emotional identification with some of the characters, as I'm sure we're going to get into as Todd talks about fucked up people. So hold on. Just, just to be clear here, when you were all into the Pooh as a teenager... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were not having sex with people. That's correct. I was 12. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I sort of pulled this out to like you were 17. No. And like, oh, no. let's talk about Tigger. It's like no. the opposite of being goth. I'm yeah. really poo. Yeah. I'm really poo. I was, I'm going just... through a heavy poo face. I'm feeling a little piglet this morning. I'm going to be honest with you. It's just. Went to the hot topic looking for poo shirts. I quit this podcast. well i'm kind of with todd i find these incredibly strange and half because i never read them as a kid and these were these were they're they're just really oddly structured um i guess when i hear steven you say that you read them to your daughter and i think about that situation which is actually the situation that's encoded within the book itself Mm -hmm. like it has this weird structure it's like he's reading 
or he's telling these stories to his son Christopher Robin about Christopher Robin's experiences that he forgot. Yeah. Right. And 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 mm-hmm. he, there's this whole charade going on where he's explaining to Christopher Robin, uh, "Don't you remember you and Pooh had this experience the other day?" And Christopher Robin pretends, "Oh yes, I do remember, but could you tell me again?" So it's this whole. And I found that kind of sweet. This like, uh, you know, storytelling structure that is, but it's also kind of weird. And it's weird to have um, within the book itself. And then I was also am kind of like, well, this is incredibly uncreative in some ways. Like, what? <laughs> you're just sitting around looking at your kids' stuffed animals and making up kind of dumb stories. But and that's, oh, that's what your parents no. do. But oh, but, but your parents do that. Down. No, no, no. But your parents do that, and I I like that idea. Like the idea of like sitting there with my, the idea of sitting there with like my parents as a kid, my parents making up stories for me about my stuffed animals. That makes perfect sense. But my parents reading me a book about another person parent doing that to other kids. I just am kind of like, well, that's sounds a weird... like child abuse. That's it's, child abuse. It's it, it's. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's really kind of odd. Uh, and I wonder if you know it. But it works obviously because. Parents have been doing that for a long time, and you're doing it with your daughter. And it, I mean, I don't know. I just found it very strange to be reading this book and you're, to be thinking I, about I mean, all of it. I see. I see what your point. I see what you're saying. Absolutely. I think I almost get the impression that these were sort of written on a lark, mm-hmm. right? And sort of, in a lot of ways, some of them just kind of slapped together. Although I, I do think that they're pretty well crafted. In you know, particular individual ones are pretty well crafted right. stories. But I, but I do also get the impression that, that he kind of threw them together on a lark and said, okay, here, let's see if we can publish this. Right. Yeah. And they were, they were huge hits even at the time that they were yeah. published. You know, isn't it wasn't that crazy? I mean, that, isn't it crazy that yeah. this little book has lasted as long as it has? And like, It really is. It really these is. characters are so enduring. That's what I couldn't believe when I – especially now reading it, I was like, well, the, the, the introduction of Pooh himself is that he's a – dumbass like the whole the concept is Pooh doesn't have very many brains and the whole joke is that Pooh's really dumb and they keep reiterating like Pooh's dumb he's really stupid and yet we're all we sort of make him into a hero look I'm just playing devil's advocate because I'm I'm you're you're playing writer strong (laughs) (laughs) I think that I mean I see what you're saying Ryder but Pooh, let's just get into Pooh's character right away because I think that is sort of the key to why these are so popular. Or is that Pooh and every single one of the characters in here is extremely flawed to a degree that is kind of disturbing, as Todd <laughs> referred to earlier. Yeah. But Pooh himself is um, so humble and upfront about what he is or isn't capable of or what he mm-hmm. can and can't do that he's really, you know, an emotional hero in that way. He's not full of pride. He's not, you know, ambitious. He just, he is what he is. He's a stuffed bear, and he achieves things occasionally, accidentally. <laughs> and He is what he is. He's a stuffed bear. Yeah, but, but really, like, there's something very beautiful in that all of these animals are just awful in one way or another. Either they're of limited brains or they're really arrogant or they're neurotic or they're, or they're or openly they, depressed um Eeyore or they need by far parts of their body nailed to them <laughs> yeah but <laughs> that christopher robin accepts them all and loves them openly with the openness of a child and they interact and in society ways. will crush him he is being set up 
to be destroyed by the world. Not the least of which because his haircut is so horrific. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you two? Let me let me just ask you this. Um, as, it, as only one of us is a parent here, and that parent is is Stephen Dow, the, the man who gave us this book. Stephen, would you cross-dress your child and then send them into the woods with a gun? <laughs> The, the 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 beginning of Winnie the Pooh, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't read it recently, involves Christopher Robin rolling deep with his shotgun like he's in Bulls on Parade, the Rage Against the Machine song. Yeah. Rolling down Rodeo with a shotgun, except he's rolling down the wood with a shotgun and hanging out with his anthropomorphic bear right. uh, who he needs to shoot from the sky right. because the bear is trying to... Um, Steal. He's literally trying to rob bees. If you notice, the illustration shows it as like a little pop gun. Yeah. yeah like it, like it has a string attached, but it's not in the it. book as a pop. It's in the book. No. It's just a gun. And, just and, a gun. And yeah. how could just this like cap gun shoot out a balloon from the sky? I don't know if the Bloods or the Guys. Crips derived from Christopher Robin. I, I think you're trying to ascribe a certain yeah. level of realism. It's maybe not appropriate. <laughs> I want to interject a modern story here. So there's this man who, an artist, and his project, he has this personal project of he goes to classrooms and he, like, has very young kids draw pictures of monsters. And, you know, they're all... I know how this ends know. up. <laughs> and uh, so they draw these, you know, like kid rendered pictures of monsters and then he takes them and he's an incredible animator and he animates them to look he animates them to look incredibly scary and real and kids love it because an adult with uh, skill and experience can render their imagination into something as beautiful and terrifying as they have imagined it and that's exactly what these stories mm -hmm. There's, he's saying, hey, remember that time where you put Piglet in the pocket of the kangaroo and jumped him around for 10 minutes and then pretended they had a bath? Well, it was actually all real and part of this beautiful, complex world. And look at these snow and look at the thistles and, you know, look at the way. Well, but that's what that's what the fictional narrator is doing to his fictional yeah. kid. I mean, that's not what's actually happening when you're reading the book, right? I mean... What's, re what's happening when you're reading the book is you're reading about that experience. It's not, and that, that's what I find yeah. so interesting is that you're, it's, because like what you're describing about somebody taking a kid's, that's one kind of interaction with kids and storytelling that's really interesting and cool. And I do find what you're saying, like within the book, it is really interesting and cool. But as a book itself, um, that's. That's not what's happening. It's it. That's I yeah, don't you know what I'm saying. Like Every single character in this book, in all the books we read, read two of them. We also read his book, Who and the the Lady Under the Stairs, or whatever the hell it was called. Uh, the House at Pooh Corner. <laughs> right, the House at Pooh Corner. That all these animals are strangely obsessive compulsive. Yes. And we need to discuss that at some length. What are you teaching your child when you teach them about? the obsessive-compulsive disorder that exists in all of these animals. Well, I am obsessive-compulsive, and so that's a perfect fit. You know, I, I'm, 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 raising, I'm raising her to be as obsessive-compulsive as I am. <laughs> see, I, I see it as, I see it as slight, rather than, than just simply obsessive-compulsive, I see the, the characters as, um, you know, I think they're reflections of adults. Mm -hmm. 
I think he's put these this, the adult world personalities, and so you know you've got Rabbit, who's just the ultimate asshole, who you know is willing to literally kill Tigger, <laughs> you know, by leaving him to exposed in a forest or kidnap and, Rue and, and yeah. kidnap it right kid and then yeah willing to to kidnap the you know Rue and you know I, I sometimes I think like because I read the Tao of Pooh too when I was a teenager and I remember loving it and thinking yes these stories are you know really resonant and you can find all this meaning in it but but sometimes I think no they're just kind of dumb stories for kids yeah. and they're just kind of silly and stupid and we can put all this meaning into it and pull it out of it and like that's what's nice about them in a way is that they're so bare bones that we can sort of put whatever we want onto them but that the reality is they're just silly stories that he's telling to his kid and that that's maybe just okay to just be a silly story like why do we have to make it more noble why do we have to say like this is a representation of the adult world on the you know like no, they're just like Pooh gets out of situations really stupidly. Like he doesn't get out of a situation because he's really awesome. He gets out of a situation by accident all the time. And I don't know if that's really his Taoist nature or just the way the story's structured to be kind of funny and silly and just kind of dumb. And like, whoop. we were talking about how there's this there encoded within the book is oh the 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 narrator or the author is reading to his son. But then also there was this moment where Christopher Robin is reading to Pooh when Pooh's stuck in the the, the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. hole. And and then I realized that a lot of the first book is um, Christopher Robin is the adult figure among these sort of childish animals. Right. And that all the animal because none of them can write and none of them can read except for Owl. And Owl is terrible at it. And they always need Christopher Robin <laughs> to like write for them. <laughs> Right, but Al's supposedly the smartest animal, but he can't write. And so I was suddenly like, oh my god, this is like this way to for a, a child to feel like the adult in a situation. And then the book ends with um, Christopher Robin giving Pooh pencils and teaching him and saying, now you can learn how to write. Now you can learn how to read. And I was like, oh, that's a sweet little parable about, you know... about Where it's a kid reading this book or having this book read to them will feel like the smartest one in this environment and will feel like sort of uh you know because the, the the logic of the animals is the logic of children in a lot of ways it's like oh we just go over there and and the problem is solved by you know we find the north pole it's actually just a pole and like there's these weird look sort of logic things that are fun to enjoy i guess as a kid because you're laughing at them and feeling smarter than the animals i actually thought of all the books that we've read I think this, well, maybe with the exception of Treasure Island, this book is extremely funny. You know, I think with all the talk of, you know, the Taoism and the lessons and blah, 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 that it really has to be said how, like, what a, how well constructed the humor is in it. And I think a lot of the humor comes from Ryder exactly what you're talking about, of the different levels of dramatic irony or awareness of who's reading the book. So a child is going to find it funny for certain reasons, and the parent reading it is going to find it funny for other reasons. And it's just beautifully done in that regard. And the second book is actually, we haven't really talked much about the second book, but the second book, The House on Pooh Corner, or whatever the hell it's called, is actually... um, the ending of it, the last, you know, several pages of it is extraordinarily moving. It's, and it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's upsetting because you understand that Christopher Robin is growing up and he's leaving the things of childhood behind, but he makes a pledge to Pooh not to do that. Um, and, but really he wants Pooh 
to remember him, not the not the converse, which I mm-hmm. think is very moving. And so I was reading this uh, last night and preparing all of my uh, trenchant criticism about the morality of it um, and the gunplay and um, and the time that Pooh worked for Bain Capital for three years. Um, and then you get to that last part and you realize that it's it's all about just, you know, there. it's a story of a parent trying to teach a child what it is to be loyal um, and what it is to care about other things through thick and thin. And that's the resounding message once you get to the end of these two books about, you know, all these trials and tribulations, the proposed kidnapping, uh, <laughs> the shotgun <laughs> attack, all of those things that you've gone through. I mean, obviously it's a parable for the crazy, strange things you go through as a child. And, and not to forget what it was like to have whimsy in your life. And when you get to that end, that, I mean, it's, it's sort of a powerful reminder of what it was like to be eight, you know? And that's, I found that very moving. And then I had to, uh, I just had to Xanax the shit out of myself to get to sleep afterwards. <laughs> that last scene is, is, um, is really poignant and really, you know, it's it's well set up, and you don't realize it until you get to that point and see that it's been set up the entire way. With, you know, there are certain certain references to, um, you know, to to Christopher Robin disappearing and leaving for periods of time, but for isolated periods of time, and nobody knows where he's going. Nobody knows why he has to do these things. And then you see sort of his writing get better over the course of the two books, and then it comes to that last scene. And I think it's. I think it's incredibly poignant, incredibly well done, and I think um, it echoes the relationship that 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 A. A. Milne had with the real Christopher Robin, his son, um, which was this. You know, when they were when he was when Christopher Robin was younger, he had this very, uh, or at least not exactly a close relationship, but you know, it was a Victorian household, and they would see each other sometimes, but they would. Um, you know, Christopher Robin grew to be very resentful of these books, especially when he started going to school and he was teased by his classmates um, over the, you know, the content. Because these were huge hits at the time that they were released. And he, you know, suffered quite a bit of abuse in school from it. Um, and so he, he grew resentful of his father taking his experiences of childhood, putting them into this, um, putting them into these books. And yet the whole... The, the whole thing reads like a love letter from the father to the son, or at least I read it that way. You know, whereas Christopher Robbins, the one that, that knows what's going on of all of the characters in the book, the one who's in charge, the one everyone looks up to, the one, you know, as Ryder was saying before, um, the one who, uh, you know, is, is existing on a plane slightly higher than all the other characters. So it's this love story to him, even though their, their personal relationship was you know, not very good. You know, I've, I've been very negative about these books, but it's, almost, it's, it's mostly because I feel like we are all told that Winnie the Pooh is this great, whimsical book, at least those of us who came to them later it, it generationally and I regret the sort of Tao of Pooh well I regret a couple of things about the way our culture is I, I, I hate that I have the cartoons so drilled into yes. my head yeah. yes. to the point that I'm reading this book and I hear the voices 
and those are good cartoons. I, you know, I watched them as kid, as a kid, but I watched them before I read the books. I read the books as an adult. The way that these animals interact, it's more fun to just let my imagination go wild, and I have a hard time doing that because of the cartoons. And then I have a hard time because of the commercialization of Pooh, which is Disney has succeeded in making Pooh stand in for a certain type of person, or or Eeyore stands in for a certain type of person. Or Tigger we all sort of is completely know wrong. Tigger is like Tigger, we have wrong. this like build, yeah, we just drilled into our heads of like, that these are kind of archetypes, they're cultural archetypes now, and I wish I could take that away, and since I can't, uh, I end up approaching the book a little negatively, and, and probably unfairly, uh, because I have this really commercial uh, Disney-fied version in my head. Well, Ryder, let me also kind of reverse what I was saying, too. I, was like, I know that I am coming at it from a critical literary perspective and a Tao of Pooh perspective, but I also really admire the simplicity and the humor of the books, which I think is really the main level at which they should be read. And it's interesting that Todd said, you know, like, it's what it like to, bleh, it's what it feels like to be eight, because it isn't. It's what it feels like mm-hmm. to be four or five. And that's a very different level right. of reality. I mean, I was a camp counselor for five-year-olds for five years, and they're living on another plane of reality, of figuring out what's real right. and what isn't and what relationships are and how people behave. But uh, it's it's nice to have that age kind of honored and represented in a way that I don't think it always is. Like, I mean, those are the kids that are reading The Very Hungry Caterpillar, but they're imagining something as complex as this. Uh, you know, like, as much as I'm reading these books and kind of going, eh, I, you know, I think I would want to, like, make up my own stories for my kids. I, you know, I think... Are you calling me lazy? Lazy. Well, you did admit that you were lazy, which is why you picked these books. <laughs> I think it's nice to have children's literature out there that, you know, leads parents into storytelling as well. I mean, I imagine that there's plenty of time to both read other people's stories and make up your own stories. Isn't that right, Stephen? That's absolutely correct. And that's the way I live my life. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. It's been, I've been thrilled to be here. Are you kidding? This is great. This is great. If you need a, um, a regular, you know, European correspondent, oh, I'm, I like I'm happy this. to file reports from abroad occasionally. Um, in terms of poets in Europe, do they read in European poet voice? <gasps> oh, that's a good question. That's Wait, Todd... I'm so glad this came up because I, I really wanted to point this out. Did you notice that Kanga also hates poetry as much as you do? I should note I do not hate poetry. She, I hate poet voice. Oh, sorry. She did not care to be the recipient of recited poetry. It really reminded me of you. <laughs> And that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when Todd finally convinces us to discuss story songs. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash literary disco and follow us on Twitter at literary disco. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. 